Please take out your Bibles and begin turning in them to John chapter 7. We are finally but sadly leaving chapter 6 behind. Uh, We are going to look today at John chapter 7 verses 1 through 9. You can find them on page 892 in the Pew Bible. John 7, 1 through 9. This morning, I want to talk about the relationship between the Word and the world. And to be clear, by Word, I mean capital W Word. I mean the Lord Jesus Christ. John has began his book in his very first verse telling us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he builds to the crescendo of 114, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the Word of God coming and entering into the world of man. And yet, this is the most significant thing that has ever happened. This is the very hinge and center of the whole of history, of, of reality, even. And so the question is, how does the world respond to the coming of the Word? What does the world do with the Word made flesh? How do you respond to the coming of the Word? Uh, what do you do with the Word made flesh? John chapter 7, quite honestly, it's harder than John chapter 6. I struggled with this one this week. What is this about? Why is this section here? John 6, the big idea is very clear. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 7, big idea is probably verses 37 through 39. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit. But we've got to get there first. And the question is, why does John get there in the way that he does? Because quite honestly, after the high of John chapter 6, the first couple of verses of John chapter 7 feel like a bit of a letdown. They're not, but it kind of feels like that. They basically consist of a family squabble and then Jesus' travelogue. Why are these verses here? Well, consider how chapter 6 ended. Remember, seemingly on a note of failure. Verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Everyone is leaving. No one is believing. There is building opposition to Christ. There is an increasing rejection of Christ. And that continues here. Plus, it's interesting to note... That there is no mention of the disciples in the whole of chapters 7 and 8. The disciples are going to show back up in chapter 9 verse 2 as Jesus' focus increasingly shifts to the disciples in his final days with them, teaching and, and preparing them for what is to come. But in the meantime, no disciples. The focus is on the people. The focus is on the crowds, the Jews, the world. And it actually begins with Jesus' brothers. Part of that world. Part of your world. There's a Little Mermaid reference there, maybe. But as we'll see, being part of that world, part of the world, not a good thing. And so, I think this section is about the ongoing and escalating conflict that keeps confronting Christ. The great opposition of the world to Christ and its rejection of Him. We just saw the crowds in Galilee reject Christ. We just found out that one of His own disciples is going to betray Christ. 
Christ. We just heard from Peter, who we know is going to deny Christ. We're about to read that Jesus hasn't been in Judea because they are trying to kill Christ. And now we're going to see that even his own brothers do not believe Christ. Right? Here is the great revelation of the great darkness of the world. And that great darkness is revealed as it comes into conflict with the great light of Christ. But do not despair. It is against the backdrop of that great darkness that the great light of Christ shines all the more brightly. So this is a revelation of the relationship between the word and the world. And this, I believe, is important because we really struggle in the evangelical world to see and understand the world rightly and biblically. And that's problematic because of places like 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so our text turns out actually to be quite an important and helpful text. As we examine the relationship between the world and the word, as we look at the world's response to the word, we can start to compare and contrast ourselves with the world. We can ask ourselves, quite honestly, are we with the word or are we with the world? Do we love the word Jesus Christ? Or do we, if we were really honest, do we really love the world? What are you doing with the word? How are you responding to Christ? And then if this is how the world responds to the word, let's close by considering how are we to respond to the world? That's going to be really, really important. It's going to feel really, really heavy. Hold on. Wait till the end. We're going to see how we're supposed to respond there. You live surrounded by that world. You are entering back into that world when you exit these doors. You interact with it every moment of every day. How should you look at it? And then how should you respond to it? Let's see. We're going to work through three points this morning. We're going to start with the world, and we're going to see first that the world does not believe the world, the word. This is the fundamental reality of the world. And then second, and this is strong language, but we'll see this is Christ's language. The world hates the word. The world hates Jesus Christ. That's heavy. Why does the world hate the Christ? We'll see. But then application at the end will be point number three. The word is still the only hope for that world. And so we're going to see what we need to do in light of that. So the relationship between the world and the word. Let's read the text. John chapter 7. We're only going to do verses 1 through 9 this morning. But I want you to pay much closer attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. After this, Jesus went about In Galilee, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Let's stop there. Let's pause. Let's pray and ask God uh, to help us in this time. Let's pray. 
Father, please, now we ask that you would help both the preaching and the hearing of your word. Father, we know that it is only by your spirit that anything of of eternal and lasting value can be accomplished. And so, Father, we believe the Holy Spirit. We ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Father, I am entirely dependent upon you to accomplish anything good here in this time. So please, Father, work by your spirit through your word. Father, we have sobering uh, realities before us this morning. We have realities that we would prefer not really uh, to consider. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to focus on your word Give us the ears to hear your word and to submit to your word. Father, give us hearts to love your son, Jesus Christ, in light of what we see in this word. Father, please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point number one, the world does not believe the word. Remember, does not believe in the word, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's set the stage. Look at verse one there where we read, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Well, after what? Well, John is not particularly concerned with a tight chronology most of the time. So he just means just generally after all that we've just read in chapter 6. With the feeding of the 5,000, the bread of life discourse, the departure of Jesus' followers. But when we consider back in chapter 6 verse 4, we saw that now the Passover, the feast of Jews, was at hand. And then now here in our text, we read chapter 7 verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Well, from those two verses, we can know that upwards of six months have passed between chapter 6 and chapter 7. And in what was only about a three-year public ministry, that's a significant chunk of time to skip. That's like, that's the whole of Mark 7, 8, and 9. John just passes right over the bulk of Jesus's Galilean ministry that the other gospels tell us so much about. Really, except for chapter 4, and except for chapter 6, which we just finished, basically the whole of John's gospel takes place in Jerusalem. John's focus is Jerusalem, and John structures much of his action around the feasts in Jerusalem, as he does here. But in the rest of verse 1, John hints at where he's going and his purpose with this section. Jesus had to stay for this time in Galilee, in part because he would not or could not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And now remember, there's nothing anti-Semitic about John's use of that designation, the Jews, there. John is a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. When John uses the term the Jews, remember, he's not using it as a general ethnic or religious term for the whole people, but he's referring specifically to the Jewish religious leaders in their antagonism and in their opposition to Jesus. And you can't really get more opposed than this. They were seeking to kill him, which connects us right back to Jesus's last trip to Jerusalem, where after he had healed a man on the Sabbath, we read in chapter 5, verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jewish religious leaders want Jesus dead. So don't miss that that's how John chooses to open up this new episode and this final return of Jesus to Jerusalem. That that colors all that follows. That that hints to us at what this is all about. But 
if you notice the heading there, if you're looking in the ESV, if you notice the heading that the ESV gives this section, it's almost as if they don't know what to do with these verses either. They title it, Jesus at the Feast of Booths. Well, sure, thanks. The whole of chapter 7 and 8 is Jesus at the Feast of Booths. But what about these first verses? And, and first, what, what is this Feast of Booths? This will be particularly important as we go, as we come to Jesus' call in verse 37 to come to him and drink. As we come to chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus declares that he is the light of the world. Those both seem to be specifically referencing aspects of this feast of booths. So real quick, some context. What, What was this thing? Well, it was the third of the three great feasts or festivals of the Jews. You could go and read about them in Deuteronomy chapter 16. In verse 16 of Deuteronomy 16, we read that God says to the people, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. The fe- at the feast of unleavened bread, that is the Passover, at the feast of weeks, that is Pentecost, and then at the feast of booths, this feast. Ask you mind, these were feasts. Feasts are celebrations. Feasts are parties. In Deuteronomy 16, 14, God commands his people, you shall rejoice in your feast for seven days. Verse 15, so that you will be altogether joyful. So good. We're still so prone to think of God as the great cosmic killjoy. That couldn't be further from the truth. He is the God. Of joy. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. He is working for your joy. And the feasts were part of his working for the joy of his people at that time. And we probably know most about the Passover today. And so we just tend to assume that the Passover was the biggest and the most important of the feasts. But that was actually not the case in Jesus' day. The Jewish historian Josephus, who was born shortly after Jesus' Death and resurrection writes that the Feast of Booths was the greatest and holiest feast of the Jews. This was the feast. It happened, depending on the, 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 the date, it happened either in September or October. And it was sort of this like combined harvest festival, right, celebrating the successful end of all their agricultural labors. And it was also a commemoration and a celebration of God's preservation of his people during their Exodus wanderings. That's why it's called the Feast of Booths or Tents. Think of just a Feast of of Tents. God commands his people in Leviticus 23.42 that they should live in temporary shelters for seven days as a reminder of their rescue from Egypt. And he goes on to say, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. So, for an entire week throughout the city, uh, again, the people that lived there, and then everyone coming in, they would set up and then stay in these makeshift temporary booths in the streets and on the houses, everywhere, tents. Some have called it the, the great national campout. Now, again, I know that I'm weird, but I've never understood camping. I just don't get it. I love being outside. I love hiking outside, but I've never understood the desire to sleep outside. Let me enjoy all that outside goodness, and then let me go and sleep in a nice, air-conditioned, bug-free hotel. 
No, maybe some of you think that's weird. A lot of you like camping. Uh, Henry camps, the Broomers camp, the Villanueva's uh, camp. Someone take my kids camping so that I don't ever have to take my kids camping. But the point is, you could see, you could imagine how big and fun this festival could be. Imagine how much kids would love this festival. It was a time to rest and relax, to rejoice, to praise God, to feast and enjoy the fruits of your labors, all while everyone throughout the city is setting up and sleeping in tents. It really does sound kind of fun. And we're going to come back to this in the weeks to come. But for now, for our purpose, as the biggest, most loved feast of the day, the point of most significance for us is that there would be a lot of people there. The world would be there. Let's pick back up in verse 3. John has already dropped a hint in verse 1. Now here we see the opposition and unbelief ramping up. Look at verse 3. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. All right, what's going on here? Well, not good things, it seems. But first, this is the first mention of Jesus' brothers since back in chapter 2, verse 12. This is actually the only really active part they get to play in the whole gospel. This should not be a controversial idea. Jesus had brothers. Lots of them. Which means that Mary had children. Lots of them. And that's a good thing. Children are good. A blessing from the Lord. The wonderful process by which children come about is good. A blessing from the Lord. Mary had many other children. In Matthew 13, 55, the crowd is astonished at Jesus' teaching. And they ask, is this not Joseph and Mary's son? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And then the parallel passage in Mark 6, 3 adds, and are not his sisters here with us as well? So it seems that Mary and Joseph had quite a large family. Awesome. They had at least seven children. There's the five brothers, and there's at least two sisters, probably more. It's great. I love big families. Mary had five sons. Melissa had five daughters, so we're, we're doing pretty well. Right? Family can be a great blessing. But look at verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Oh, family can also be a great discouragement. And here again is our theme. Opposition to Jesus, rejection of Jesus, unbelief. And here it is coming from within his own family. You know, what a revelation this is of the hardness of the human heart and of the depravity of man. They would have lived their entire lives with Jesus. They would have known Jesus better than anyone. And note that in verses 3 and 4, they believe that Jesus can perform these signs. They have no doubt about what he's been doing. They've seen the signs. They believe in his ability to do the supernatural uh, things. And yet, they do not believe in him. This, this is the unbelieving belief that we keep seeing in John's gospel. And we just saw this back in 636. Jesus said to the crowd, you have seen me and yet do not believe. Back in chapter 2, 23, at his first Passover feast, we saw that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But then we saw this remarkable verse 24. They believed, but then it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Literally in the Greek it says, they believed, but Jesus did not believe in them. That's amazing. So John keeps coming back to this. There is a belief in Jesus that is not belief in Jesus. 
His brothers believe that he can perform the signs, but they do not believe him. There's, this is the great unbelief that marks the world. John's summary statement of the word's relationship to the world is found in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, where he told us, He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Did not know, did not receive. The world is marked first by unbelief toward the very one that made the world. Unbelief is that this is the very nature of this world. But hold on. We just read that Jesus' brothers did not believe in Jesus. Why am I using them to then go on and say that the world does not believe in Jesus? Well, let's move on to point number two and see. Because, because here's where it gets hard and heavy. I need you with me here. I need you pay, paying attention to the word, Christ's words. Not necessarily my words, but God's words. The world does not believe the word may not sound all that bad to our ears. It, it should, but it may not. This we probably won't be able to miss. Point number two, the world hates the word. We, we tell our, our girls not to use that word um, or to use it very wisely and, and carefully. Well, here I am using that word. Because Christ uses that word. Go back to the text. Back to verse 6. We saw last week that Jesus has some hard words for us. Here are some very hard words for his brothers. 6 and 7. Jesus said to them, his brothers, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Gloss over that. Did you, did you just catch what Jesus did there? Did you, did you catch what he just said to his brothers? The more you read about Jesus, the more you realize that Jesus' responses are never what we would expect them to be. We would definitely not expect this. But first, look, go back for a second to, to, to his brother's words in verses 3 and 4. Again, we've got to better understand those so we can understand his response. Back to 3 and 4 and his brothers. What is their motivation there. Again, what are they uh, really saying? What is their plan for Jesus? Well, don't forget what's just happened again. It seems like everything is falling apart. Jesus' popularity is waning. People are leaving. And I assume that Jesus' brothers are somewhat like me. And I like that my big brother is a big shot. I think that's pretty cool. He's very successful and he's very good at, at what he does. Why do I like that? Well, if we're being honest, in part, it's because it benefits me. And in part because I think it reflects well on me. Not only is he very successful, but he's very generous. I like having a beach house to use. I like having a mountain getaway to escape to. I like benefiting from his success. And we, all of us, don't we, like being connected to and associated with important people? It's kind of silly if you think about it, but it makes us feel important as well. Yeah, you know, I'm with him. Kind of a big deal then, you know. It's silly, but we all do it. And I, I like to be associated with Ed Moore. I like to be associated with my brother. And what would I be tempted to do maybe if his success started to wane a little bit? I'd probably be tempted to say something like, hey, man, you know, maybe you should do something about this, right? Maybe you should take some steps to kind of get back on track. What's my concern there? Myself, my beach house, right, my mountain house. What is the brother's concern here? 
Wait, it's, it's themselves. It's entirely themselves. They are just like the crowd in 626 where Jesus told them, you are seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. Remember, the crowd was not seeking Jesus, but what they could get from Jesus. The brothers are not concerned about Jesus and his ministry. They're concerned about his success and fame and popularity and their connection and association with him. And I'm going to keep coming back to this because it is so subtle and sneaky. It is so easy to be doing this and not even realize it. But examine yourself. What are you after? Honestly, what are you after? Why are you here? Are you after Christ? Or are you after, ultimately, what you can get from Christ? I think it's clear what Jesus' brothers are after. Go, show yourself. Go make an appearance at the most popular and crowded time of the year in the most important place and make a name for yourself and us. Restore the family name. Restore the family honor. And they, like everyone else, misunderstood Jesus. They had an entirely worldly expectation and plan for Jesus. Yeah, so ask yourself, what are your expectations and plans for Jesus? If you're honest, you're like, what do you think Jesus should be doing? What do you think he should be doing for you? Why are you discontent? What are you implicitly waiting for God to do? And then you'll be happy. Look, go back to verse 6. Because look at how Jesus responds to this. Look at Jesus' response to people's desire uh, to use him. What does he mean that his time has not yet come there in verse 6? Well, some think that he means his hour, the, the time of his coming crucifixion. Um, when he talks about his hour, I think that is what he's talking about. He doesn't talk about his hour here. This is a different word that he uses. This is his, I think just in the context, he simply means that it's not yet time for him to go to the feast of booths. We'll tackle his saying he's not going and then he goes. We'll tackle that um, next week. So he says, uh, it is not yet time for him to go to the feast of booths, but they can go anytime. It doesn't matter. And some would argue that if you, if you really understand this, and if you really understand the context in which he's saying this and the, and the Jewish uh, kind of worldview, this would have been hugely insulting. In saying that his time has not yet fully come. Again, Jesus is most likely situating himself within the meticulous sovereignty of God and God's perfect and detailed providential plan for him and the whole of his life. But not only was the exact timing of Jesus' crucifixion planned and set and fixed in the sovereignty of God, but so was the exact timing of every single moment of Christ's life. And so, maybe, potentially, I think this is correct, by saying to his brothers, my time has not come, your time is always here, it could almost be as if Jesus is saying that they were, in a sense, excluded from divine sovereignty, outside of divine sovereignty. Again, not, not, not as if like, that can actually happen. God can't actually suspend his meticulous sovereignty for, for every single one of us. But it's almost as if Jesus is saying to them that what they did was utterly without significance as far as God was concerned. Why would he say that? And is he saying that? Well, I think it's confirmed for us that he is in verse 7. Here are the hard words. Look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you. Why not? And what's the only obvious logical conclusion? It's because they belong to the world. They are part of the world. Jesus has just called his own brothers 
the world. What's the big deal? The rest of verse 7 is the big deal. But it, the world, hates me. The word himself tells us that the world hates him. The world himself, Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, the creator and sustainer of reality, the one we say that we most love and live for, tells us that the world hates him. These are hard and heavy words indeed. This is what most characterizes the world. This is the clearest revelation of the great wickedness of the world. How it responds to its own maker. The world hates the word. Nothing is more revealing about the true nature of this world than its response to the coming of its creator. You cannot think rightly about the world if you do not consider first this fact. The world hates Christ. The world's opinion of the word must inform our opinion of the world. So we, just, we cannot miss this fundamental fact about the nature of the world. It hates him. Why does it hate him? He tells us. Back to verse 7. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. The word testifies that the works of the world are evil. And I don't know about you, uh, but the world hates to be confronted with this reality. Just, just, just to be clear here, Jesus is not saying anything here that he hasn't already said. We saw this back in chapter 3, if you want to look at it, in verses 19 and 20. We so focus on the glory of John 3.16 that we often miss the rest of the passage. Well, John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed. And that's our first point. That's how bad unbelief is. Unbelief leads to condemnation. He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Again, not my, I'm not picking these words. These are the words from the text. The world hates the word. John 3 says the world hates the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And so if we are going to be people of the word, if we are going to be followers of Christ and lovers of Christ, then we have to understand that the world is going to hate us as well. And once again, Jesus says this very thing. You can look at John 15 if you would like. John 15, 18, and 19. Jesus warns us. <clears throat> he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love you as, as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus is using this hate word a lot in John's gospel. If the world hates the word, and Jesus says that it does, then the world will hate the people of the word, which Jesus says that it does. Do we believe that? Are we ready for that? Are we okay with that? I'm not sure. That we are. I mean, so much of the evangelical world in, in this country in the last know, 50, 60, 70 years has seemingly been marked by a desperate desire to be accepted by the world. To be seen as cool in the eyes of the world. Oh, but this is a mistaken and dangerous 
desire. Jesus warns us in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. We should at least be somewhat cautious and concerned when the world speaks well of us. Because here Jesus is very clear that the world hates him and that the world hates his people. And it is because of the fundamental evil, it is because of the fundamental evil at the heart and soul of the world that it hates the word. And we simply do not have time to even scratch the surface of just the flood of scripture that confirms this fact. We could look at already what we've seen further in John 1 and John 3. We could look at Genesis 6-5, which says that God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention, evil continually. I don't think we believe that. We could look again further at, at Romans 3, which we just read. As Romans 3 is brutal, if you'll actually consider what it says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And it, and it gets worse. I'll, I'll stop there because we've already read it. But we want to ignore such verses. We want to qualify them. And we want to explain, hey, they can't really mean exactly what they say. Or we could look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where we read that all are dead in trespasses and sins. All are following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan, by the way. We don't even really believe in Satan anymore. Um, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience. That's us, by the way. It goes on. Who were by nature children of wrath. Man. Yeah, there's, just, there's so much more that we could look at. And we want to say, no, 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 no. It can't be that bad. The world can't be that bad. That can't be the whole story. I think Jesus is pretty clear here. He says the world hates him because its works are evil. And it's getting harder and harder to deny that fact. I try not to read much news. I try to limit it to, I'll check briefly like once a day because I just hate the news. Um, it was a pretty rough news week just for our city. Right? A, a man last week shoved a woman in front of a train and she died. An older woman. A man gunned down a young woman at Burger King over $100 and she died this week. Friday night, 22-year-old police officer was gunned down and murdered, and, and he died. And there's another guy in critical condition. 22. That is pure evil. The wanton devaluing and taking of human life made in the image of God is the height of evil and wickedness. And listen, that's why we want to make sure and acknowledge that today is, is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. You have an insert there in your bulletin that I want you to pull out and we're going to look at in a second. Yesterday was one of the most abhorrent anniversaries that there is. Uh, 49 years ago yesterday was the anniversary of the landmark, or 49 years ago yesterday was the landmark life-ending, God-mocking, word-hating, uh, Roe vs. Wade Supreme Court decision. This is an absurdly argued decision if you actually go and read about it. There's no, there's no actual logic uh, behind it, a wickedly evil decision, a decision that to this day has cost, and this may be an underestimate, right? we don't exactly know, but to this day has cost the lives of over 63 million persons. And that's just in this supposedly great and free and care for the least of these countries. That's just here. 
Uh, it's, it's difficult, I think, for us to wrap our minds around the horror that is abortion in this country. Uh, there's nothing great about this country if this is what continues to characterize this country. Uh, we are rightly incensed when one person unjustly has their life taken. We are angry when three people in our city unjustly have their lives taken. We cannot even begin to comprehend the number 63 million. And yet, it seems like we don't care. And yet, some of you right now are uncomfortable because I'm getting political. Maybe some of you are wondering, uh, why are we talking about this justice issue and not other justice issues? I, 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 I hear you. I get that. But let me repeat that number. 63 million. What if those are actually lives in there? Like, what if those are actually persons? If they are, then all the reproductive rights, all the freedom of women arguments mean nothing. Let's be clear, mean nothing. 63 million lives, persons unjustly murdered, legally. And it's not just legal, but it's encouraged. It is celebrated. It is increasingly becoming part and parcel of the, like the fundamental warp and warp of what it means to be American. Our state legislator, uh, legislature just a few years ago erupted in cheers when they passed an abhorrently evil and wicked law legalizing abortion all the way up to the moment of birth. And then they lit up the World Trade Center in pink in celebration of death and of murder. Listen, that's disturbingly evil. What if those 63 million, what if that number, what if those are actually persons? We just got to see our lovely little person again, Vera, only 35 weeks old. Again on Wednesday, we saw her. I feel, the highlight of my day is at night. I get to feel her and I get to watch her and she kicks me. I can see her little butt sticking out. There's a foot and a leg. I swear sometimes she's responding to what I'm doing. I really think she is. Listen, the science is clear. I think hey, we have won that argument. It cannot be denied. There's a person in there. We've seen her. I can feel her life. And she is wonderful. But we are currently allowed to end her life if we want. Anytime. We could just go right now. And we could end her life. And it would be celebrated. But in four weeks, when she's born, we would be arrested and imprisoned for murder. There's... There's, but there's no difference. And so listen, this is an evil beyond imagination. And so this is why I want to draw your attention to that insert there in your bulletin. We as a church support Borough Pregnancy Care Center, and I want us to increase our support for Borough Pregnancy Care Center. One of the accusations that Christians often hear in this conversation is that we only care about the child before birth and not the child and the mother after birth. But that is precisely what Borough is all about doing. And so we're stepping up our involvement with them. They have started using our building for classes, and we we want them to use it more. Listen, they need help. They're the only ones doing what they are doing in this city of death. They don't just need money. They do need money, but they don't just need money. They also need volunteers, women. They need some ladies to teach some classes on motherhood. Men, they are looking for some men to teach some classes on fatherhood. They need our prayer. They need our support. 
Now, Henry, one of our, our deacons up here in the balcony, is already working closely uh, with Burrow. Please, if you have any questions or any interest in getting involved, see Henry or, or see myself. I'm meeting with the director, Teresa, on, on Tuesday, and I would love to have some more volunteers to offer her. I want you to just really actively consider. Read what they're about. Read what it is that they're doing. Consider it. Pray about it. Come talk to us. What if we could be actively involved in saving the lives of the weakest and most helpless among us? What if we could be actively involved in supporting women in very difficult situations? Not by encouraging them toward murder, but by doing whatever we can to help them nurture life. From the beginning of the process, all the way past birth, all the way through the mothering process. What an opportunity we have here to play uh, an active role in combating the horrendous evil of our day. I'm reading a biography right now of Dietrich Bonhoeffer with the girls. It's a kid's biography. It's hard to be a kid's biography when you're dealing with that time period. Uh, Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who chose to stand against Hitler in the Second World War. But as we've been reading about Hitler's rise in Germany, there have been multiple times as I'm reading when one of the girls have interrupted me and said something like, Hold on. You mean they were doing this? It it didn't actually start with the Jews. It started with with what Hitler declared to be the defectives among the Germans. That was his his title for it, the defectives. Those with physical and mental disabilities. Hitler instituted the government-sanctioned process of wiping them out, of executing them, ending their lives because they were unwanted, because they were My girls just can't quite wrap their mind around the horrendous evil of the whole thing. What our government is doing is no less deplorable. It's no different. What if one day our children could look back as we're reading about this time period and not understand and say, wait, you mean people were doing what back then? That would be wonderful. Maybe 49th anniversary will be the last anniversary, but even that will only be a start. And so listen, this is not up for debate. Right? If, you're, if you're warring against this right now in your heart internally, I think you should really consider why that is. Because again, what if the 63 million are actually people? Christians cannot disagree about this. It's murder, it's evil. A Ligonier article on Friday was titled, Who Will Speak If the Church Is Silent? Nobody. Nobody will. I'd love to talk with you afterwards if you have questions or concerns. But what a clear and present example of what Christ is saying here. What a clear example of the evil works of the world that hates the word. Here is a love of death and a hatred of life. Calvin writes on these verses, Peace with the world can only be purchased by a wicked consent to vices and to every kind of wickedness. We we want no such peace. We do not want peace with a world of such death. We do not want to wickedly consent to those vices and to that kind of wickedness. Calvin then goes on to say that Christ here declares in verse 7, all who have not yet been regenerated by the Spirit are Christ's adversaries. And why? Because he condemns their works as evil. And if we agree with the word of Christ, we are under the necessity of acknowledging that the whole nature of man is so sinful and wicked that nothing right or sincere or good can proceed from it. Kind of like, ah, is that feels like a little too much. Christ says the world hates him. The Lord of life, light 
beauty, glory, goodness. He says the world hates him because his works are evil. So again, these are heavy words, but they're Christ's words. But this is the world. And if this is true, again, I'm going to keep encouraging. Consider his words, not mine. But if Christ is correct, then we cannot let this world's priorities dictate our priorities. We cannot let this world's passions dictate our passions. We cannot love what the world directs us to love. We cannot love the world because the world hates God and the world hates the people of God. Again, that's just, Jesus says the world hates me. Again, I'm just going to leave it at that. And so then our final question is, I mean, well, I mean, what do we do with this? I mean, what, what does that mean for us today? If this is how the world relates to the word, all right then, how do we relate to the world? Well, point number three. The word is the only hope for the world. I had a whole other point here. I decided at the last minute to cut it out. You're welcome. I love you. Uh, that's why we stopped at verse nine. All I want to do for these last few minutes is try and to, to apply what we've looked at. So far, the world does not believe um, the word. The world hates the word. As we'll see next week, the world entirely misunderstands the word. They simply do not understand who Christ is. But what do we do with all this? And here's where I want to caution you. Right? And I want to caution myself. We absolutely do need to have a better and more biblical picture of the world. We need to see the world for what it is in all of its evil and in all of its opposition to God. But what should that do in us? Uh, Here's the question. Should the world's hatred of the word fill us with hatred? That's a a dangerous and sinful temptation. It's a reality that we need to be aware of. We have to aggressively resist it. All that we have seen this morning should fill us, not with hatred, but with great humility. Why? Why? There's so many places that we could go. How about Titus? Let's, let's try Titus. Uh, go to Titus real quick if you'd like. Page 998 if you want to look at it. I'm going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 11. I love hearing that sound. Oh, good work. Titus 2, verse 11. 998. Paul writes there, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And that's, that's Christ. What, how does grace appear? Christ. Christ is grace. Christ is the grace of God. Christ brings salvation. Skip down to 3.1. At the end of of verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul tells us to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. What if we just lived in accordance with that verse? We would be different people. But why? Why does he tell us that we should do that? Why should that be our character? Why should that be how we act? Keep reading. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Why not hatred, but humility? For we ourselves were once just like the world. We ourselves once were the world until grace. Until grace. And grace changes everything. Or consider 1 Corinthians 
6. I forgot a page number. 1 Corinthians 6. Paul has no problem calling out and naming sin for what it is and what it deserves. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Couldn't be more clear. And then he launches into that graphic list. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, but then there's verse 11. Wonderful verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of us. Let's be clear. Such were all of us. The world hates the word. And we were very much part of that world. But what happened? Grace happened. So we were the world. I was no better than the most wicked of the world. Maybe I never murdered anyone. Jesus clearly says that my sinful anger is murder. Maybe I never committed adultery. Jesus tells me that my long history with pornography was adultery. What do I deserve? I deserve death and hell. What do I get? I get forgiveness and life. Why? Grace and grace alone. Christ and Christ alone. This is the gospel. Christ takes my place. He takes my sin out of his great mercy. He dies the death that I deserve. While I was yet a sinner, while I was unbelieving, while I was hating him, he dies my death and gives me the life that only he deserved. The gospel is all about substitution. And my only hope is that substitution. My only hope is that grace. And listen, church. What does grace do? Grace, it it humbles us. It must humble us. If grace does not humble us, then maybe we haven't gotten grace. Because let's be clear, I am no better. I deserve no better. There but for the grace of God go I. And that grace makes me humble and joyful and glad and content and kind And you know what else that grace must make me? It must make me a witness to that grace. Here is the only Christian response to a world that hates the word Jesus Christ. Two more spots in John and I'll be done. I want you to see this. Jesus does the same thing twice in John 15 and 17. Two more times Jesus talks about the world's hatred of his followers. And then two times he applies it in the same way. We already looked at John 15. Look there again, 902. John 15. Again, catch, catch his language again. Hard words. Look at verse 18. I'm not going to read all of it. In verse 18, he again says, the world hates you. In verse 19, he again says, the world hates you. In verse 20, he says, the world will persecute you. Skip down to 26 and 27. <laughs> this is amazing. Hatred, hatred, persecution. Our response 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. 27, catch this. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. What? Hatred, hatred, persecution, witness. Look across the page at chapter 17. It's so good. 
We don't have enough time. Chapter 17. We're going to spend a year in John 17. Uh, Pick up in verse 14. Jesus is praying to the Father uh, for his people. Verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This is really an underrated theme of Jesus's in John, right? It's the world's hatred of the word and the people of the word. But keep reading. Verse 15, again, talking to the Father. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 18, here's your application. Here's how Jesus tells us to respond to the world's hatred. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Why? Witness. Only witness. Christian, saved by the grace of God, in a world that does not believe in and hates the word of God, what are you to be? What are you to do? Witness. Why? Because that word, that word that we have seen is the word of eternal life. That word that reveals the word Jesus Christ to his life is the only hope for this dark and dying and evil world. And because we are uniquely positioned, having experienced both the great evil and darkness and death as once part of that very world, and then having been saved out of that very world only by the grace of God, then our response must be to do everything that we can, humanly speaking, to speak to as many people as we can about that grace of God that saves Sinners. So the word is the only hope for the world. There's nothing else ultimately will save it. Education will not save it. Social reform will not save it. Ending um, food poverty will not poverty. None of these things. None of those things will save it. All those things can be good and addressed, and people need to deal with that. Uh, the world can do that. But the word is the only ultimate hope for the world. And we have it. We have that word. We just spent 50 minutes reading it and talking about it. You have it in your uh, hands. You have it in your pocket. You probably have dozens of Bible in your home. Church, what have we done with this word? Have we been humbled by the word? Have we been compelled and constrained by that word? Why won't we then speak that word to a lost and dying world? And so it starts with seeing the truth of the nature of the world that we live in. Lost in unbelief. Drowning in hatred of the God who is life. Celebrating and pursuing its evil. It starts with seeing the great grace of God that saved us from all that. That saved us from our own sins. Listen, this is why we have to emphasize the wickedness of the world. I'm sure somebody's thinking, it's a little too heavy. Maybe kind of taking a little bit too far. You know, couldn't we maybe talk a little bit more positively uh, about the world? But listen, this is why we have to get this right. Look at how bad the world is. Oh, but look at how good God is. Look at how bad we were as a part of that world. Oh, but look at how good God is. It's this that helps us to understand this. We minimize this. We miss this. It is the great evil and wickedness and darkness and evil of the world and of our own hearts that makes the grace of God just utterly astounding. And that melts our hearts 
and that humbles us and that makes us glad. And it's that, only seeing that by the grace of God, that then will develop and compel us into speaking about that grace. And actually then boldly speaking that gospel of God, which is the power of God for salvation. Do we believe this? Do we believe that this world is that bad and that its only hope is Christ? Do we believe that we were that bad and yet we got grace and that we have the gospel that is the hope and the grace for all who would come to Christ and believe? If we do, then church, we must speak. So let me be clear. We respond to the hatred of the world with a love that is strong enough to speak of the evil of that world and then to point that world to the word that is life and truth and grace and joy and everything. To speak of the Jesus Christ who is the Savior of the world. Christian, we are witnesses. We must speak if these things are true. Let's close and pray that God would convict us and make us his faithful witnesses. Uh, Bow with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. These are the words of eternal life as they reveal to us and communicate to us the Christ who is life. Father, if I've been off or wrong or anything that I've said here, I pray that you would set that aside. I pray that you would make that clear so that I could fix it. But Father, if Christ's words are true here, if this is the world, if the world hates you and hates Christ and has responded to Him in this way, then Father, I pray that we would see that and that we would understand that rightly. I pray that we would continue to be um, renewed and transformed by the renewing of our mind as the Scriptures and the truths of Your Word continue to come in and to shape and to change and to inform us. And Father, I pray that that would not lead us at all to pride or anger. Father, protect us from pride. Forgive us for our pride and anger. Father, how contrary is that to your grace? Father, please humble us. Please make us very content and thankful and glad for your grace, realizing what it is and realizing that we deserve none of it. None of it. And I pray that that would make us quick to speak, boldly, lovingly, graciously, believing that Christ is the only hope for this evil and lost and dying world. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for how little we care about the things of God. Uh, forgive us how, for how little we care about the lost and dying world. Father, we have the gospel. We have the words of life. Father, I pray that you would use us in our various spheres of influence. I pray that right now we could be considering where you and your sovereignty have placed us in our homes and in our schools and our workplaces and our neighborhoods. The opportunities that you have given us, the relationships that you have given us. Father, forgive us for not leveraging those for the gospel and and for your glory. I pray that you would compel us by your grace and your goodness and your glory to love people enough to speak to them of the Christ who is life. Father, we desperately need your help. And so we ask for it now in the name of Jesus. Amen.